0: Many people believe that we can't know what really happened during Jesus' life and right after His death. Since the New Testament has been copied over and over for thousands of years, surely its original message has been lost or at least corrupted beyond repair. However, the people who make this claim are sadly not aware that the manuscripts that make up the New Testament are the most well-attested manuscripts from the ancient world. If the New Testament manuscripts can't be trusted, then no other writings from the ancient world can be trusted. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the evidence regarding the New Testament manuscripts and show you why we think they are reliable sources. So I hope you'll stick around because I guarantee you'll never think of the New Testament the same way after hearing why we think it is more reliable than any other ancient writing. Welcome back, everyone. In this lecture, we are going to be talking about the New Testament manuscripts, and in particular, we are going to be talking about why we think the New Testament manuscripts are reliable. And when I say that, I mean not necessarily at this point. Uh, we're not saying that the that the events uh, in the New Testament happened based on evidence. What we're saying in this lecture is that the manuscript evidence is such that we are highly certain uh, that what we have today in our uh, Bible translations is uh, extremely close to what the original writings were. So that's what we're going to be looking at. It's obviously a, a very important topic whenever you are trying to defend the truth of Christianity uh, is to try to show someone that, because uh, a lot of people might think, well, the Bible's been copied so much over the years, uh, and who, who's to say who, what they actually wrote in those first manuscripts? Uh, well, what we're looking at today is kind of an, an answer to that, okay? Um, before we get into this, like we always do, I like to start with a Bible passage that has something to do uh, with what we're discussing Uh, In our last lecture, we introduced uh, Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and this is our Bible passage for this lecture as well. So um, it says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Um, I didn't have much to say about this, but I did discuss this passage in the last lecture, so if you'd like to hear me talk about it, you can go back to the lecture on historical knowledge. But I like this passage because right now, well, especially in the last lecture, we talked about how the New Testament is claiming uh, to be making statements about what actually happened in history, and that's why that's one of the major reasons why we pulled it out is because we were talking about historical knowledge in the last lecture. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, when you are looking at something and trying to determine whether it actually happened or not, you want to make sure that you know what the original author wrote. And that's why that's still a good passage for what we're talking about today. Uh, we're going to be, like I said, looking at the manuscripts and and arguing that we we do have what they originally wrote. Um, our our reflection questions for this lecture I've got uh, three of them. Um, the first question the first question is why do you think it matters that we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient document? The second question is if someone thinks we cannot trust the New Testament, what implications would this have for ancient history? And the third question is do you think the New Testament is susceptible to the telephone game objection? And I'll be talking about that last question especially. Uh, towards the end of the lecture. Um, As always, just know uh, I'd like to talk about these reflection questions, uh, ask them to you at the beginning, uh, just to give you some things to be thinking about. A lot of times these questions um, highlight some of the more important aspects of the lecture, but also I was hoping to interact with some of you. So if you'd like to um, uh, make some comments in the, under the video, uh, or if you're listening to this in a podcast, send me an email any questions you have, but also if you just want to post uh, your some of your reflections on these questions, and feel free. Love to hear from you guys. Uh, but let's talk about all of this today. So before I started talking, before I started discussing uh, the evidence regarding the New Testament manuscripts, I wanted to stop and mention why this is important for a three-step apologetic method. So if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about when I say three-step apologetic method, you can go back to a lecture I have, I think it's the third one, it's, it's uh, titled Apologetic Method, and it explains kind of uh, the whole thinking behind the, the order in which I present all this information in this series on apologetics. But um, as I discussed there, the three-step apologetic method is where you defend the existence of truth, The second step is to defend the existence of god the third step is to defend the resurrection of jesus christ we do all this in a practical in an order in this order for practical reasons if someone doesn't believe that truth is objective then there's no point in trying to argue that god exists or jesus rose from the dead so you first need to explain to them that truth is objective Um, second step is to argue that god exists right because if god doesn't exist then it doesn't matter. Uh, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection doesn't matter because if God doesn't exist, then miracles aren't possible. Um, and then third, you you transition into defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're getting into. It's it really. <laughs> I, whenever I taught this class uh, at Kingdom Preparatory Academy, I felt sorry for my students in a certain way. I mean they they were they were really uh, they're really enjoying a lot of the course. But it just really is such like a slow burn leading into the evidence for the resurrection because I needed to talk about a handful of things before we get there, including stuff that we've covered so far, like the possibility of miracles, the historical knowledge. Well, before we start looking at what the New Testament is saying about Jesus' resurrection, first we need to, to ask the question, well, all, are these manuscripts that we have that make these history claims are these manuscripts reliable in the first place? Because a lot of people think that uh, maybe uh, the manuscripts uh, don't contain what the original authors wrote. So that's why we need to look at this, and obviously it's crucial for the gospel, because if we don't have what the apostles wrote, uh, then how do we know uh, if, if any given sentence in the New Testament is actually from the apostles? So Obviously that's important. So we want to determine whether the, the New Testament as a collection of uh, manuscripts is reliable or not. One thing I want to mention, especially with apologetic method is, okay? Uh, one thing that a lot of uh, a major misconception about Christianity uh, is that, Christians believe the Bible because the Bible says it's the word of God, right? So it's like this circular reasoning that people claim that Christians this this uh, circular reasoning fallacy that people claim Christians are making. Uh, They uh, Christians the, the you know the objection says Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God, right? You know, so if you like, why would you believe it's the Word of God if you didn't, because it says it's the Word of God, unless you already believed it was the Word of God, so they argue it's circular reasoning. Well, uh, what this three-step apologetic method does, once you've uh, established the possibility of miracles, you you really try to meet the non-believer on neutral ground, and you want to emphasize and a lot of people don't realize this, I think, because whenever I mention this to to people, uh, whenever I'm I'm kind of you know witnessing to people or, or just talking about apologetics, I, I mention to people that you know the Bible is actually a collection of of writings. Uh, the The New Testament, for example, is a collection of twenty six, uh, excuse me, twenty seven uh, uh, letters or books, right? You got your gospels, which are a little bit longer than you've got your epistles, like uh, Paul and Peter and James, Uh, and and it's a collection of writings. And these and we but where do we get these? Someone didn't just package it all up, you know. Wasn't all just uh, authored by Shakespeare, right? And then in the King James version, and then handed to the West. No, it it came to the church. It came to the West in the form of all these manuscripts. And, um, and, and we piece these together and that's what you've got in your Bible today, the new Testament. Well, uh, when we're trying to show that the Bible is the word of God, we can't assume that it's, it's inspired, right? And what you're going to do is whenever you're trying to defend that the Bible is the word of God, before you get to that conclusion, which it will be a logical conclusion that the Bible is the word of God, by the way, eventually I'm going to have a lecture on that. But whenever you're trying to argue that the, uh, the for Jesus' resurrection, um, if someone doesn't believe that the New Testament is uh, reliable in the first place, then you're going to need to stop and make this point that, that we we do uh, have, we are certain that we have what the authors originally wrote, okay? And during this step, we're not treating the Bible like it's Scripture or like it's the Word of God. We're just going to say, look, let's, we've got um, all these manuscripts that are supposed to be copies of the original writings, and we want to just show that these manuscripts are reliable. Okay, so we're meeting the non-believer on neutral ground so that we can move on to the third step, which is trying to defend the historicity, the, the fact of Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so how are we going to do this? Well, uh, when, when scholars study ancient documents, and they're trying to see if they're reliable or not. There's three major questions that they ask regarding the manuscripts that, are, that exist today. Okay. One major issue they look at is how many manuscripts of a certain work exist. The second question is how old are the manuscripts. And the third question is when was the work originally written. And the reason why they ask these questions is because it is it is uh, generally assumed, uh, not necessarily assumed, but um, the consensus with studying ancient documents is that the closer the, the existing manuscripts are to when they think the, the work was originally written, the more we can be sure that what we have is what was originally written, right? Um, if something was written, uh, if we, th- we have reason to believe that a specific work was written a thousand years ago, we want to find manuscripts that are as close to that writing a thousand years ago as possible. If we if our oldest manuscript is only five hundred years old, then we're sitting here saying, okay, well this was copied down for five hundred years, and there's no telling how many variations there are, or maybe there were mistakes made over the years in copying this over and over. But we just have like five hundred years past the original writing, so it makes it harder. If you have uh, a, a manuscript of that writing that's like one year old, uh, excuse me, one year from the original writing, or, or at least 100 years, now we're talking, now it seems like we can get closer to be thinking that this manuscript is going to help us uh, uh, show what was originally written. You know, especially when you talk about getting to the point where the author was still alive, uh, that's would be like the best, right, is to have a manuscript from the time the author was alive. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the closer to the original writings, the more reliable the manuscript's going to be, right? And then uh, uh, also, how many manuscripts exist today? This question is asked because the greater the number of copies, the easier it is to uh, line up all the copies and, and compare them to each other and see what if there's any differences the, the more copies you have, the more you can compare all the copies with one another, and the more we think that we can determine what was originally written. Okay, but it's really complex because it, it really does have to do with how old is each manuscript, uh, how, are they different, are they the same, what's different, and, uh, and and all sorts of things that I'll be talking about through this lecture. Okay, and yeah, uh, I've I've heard uh, this process um there's a, an a influential apologist named Josh McDowell uh, he calls it the bibliographical test is basically whenever we we take all these questions and we we examine the New Testament according to those standards uh, and and I have I think I got this definition from Josh Mac, one of Josh McDowell's books uh, maybe from this uh, uh if you if you uh, if you're just listening to this and you don't see my slide, uh, there's a you can actually go look at uh, this. Uh, there's a resource on the internet. I hope this is still good, but it's on Josh McDowell's website, jo- uh, Josh.org. But uh, it's he wrote a um, he wrote an article titled "The Bibliographical Test." Uh, if you just Google Josh McDowell bibliographical test, you should find it. Um, well, anyways, uh, he defines bibliographical test as examining the textual transmission of a document by noting how reliable the copies are in regard to the number of manuscripts and the time interval between the original and extant copies. Okay? It's basically asking these three questions of the text and of the, all the manuscripts. And seeing how well it lives up to it, and that's basically what I'm going to be talking about in this lecture: is showing not only how the New Testament, um, uh, uh, how the new, not only talking about the answers that the New Testament provides to these three questions, uh, the manuscripts of the New Testament, but also comparing this with all other ancient writings. Okay, because. And here's the thing, and I think this is a good point in the lecture to mention this. The thing is, uh, obviously in Western universities across the United States and Europe, we have scholars in in departments, in history departments, studying ancient history. And, and a lot of times they use ancient writings to study ancient history and learn things about the ancient world. Okay, And what will happen in this lecture is that I'm going to show you how the New Testament by far exceeds, uh, by far passes this bibliographical test way better than any other ancient writing. And the thing is, if you want to reject the New Testament because you think it's unreliable, uh, based off of what I'll show you, uh, you know, how many manuscripts we have and, and how far it was from the original writings, if you want to reject the New Testament on that, then you must also reject all other ancient writings because they don't they don't pass the test as well. But here's the thing: we've got all these. You know, we we think we do know about the ancient world, so it's pretty much absurd to reject the New Testament um, uh, on the basis of the biographical test because we think we do know a lot about the ancient world, even though the writings we have about the ancient world aren't as reliable as the New Testament is. So a major point that we're trying to make in this lecture. Uh, but let's look at these. So one of the things we said, uh, one of the questions was that when uh, scholars are uh, looking at manuscripts, they are asking, how many manuscripts exist today? okay? And the New Testament is just whenever you see whatever you see us com- uh, contrast this with other ancient writings. This um, may or may not blow your mind, depending on whether you've heard this information before or not. But it blew my mind the first time I, I, I heard it because I just didn't realize this was a thing. It, it makes sense um, uh, when you think about it, but I don't. I just don't know how many people know this. Okay, so uh, hopefully you you know that the New Testament was written in Greek. Well, there's uh, f- over 5,600 uh, manuscripts of the New Testament written in Greek. Okay. Um, and, and as you'll see that that number alone is almost like three or four times more than the, the closest, uh, ancient writing, which is Homer's Iliad. Uh, but in addition to those 5,600 manuscripts in Greek, there's like around, I think it's like, uh, 19,000 or so manuscripts written in other languages, So there's uh, over 10,000 manuscripts written in Latin, over 4,000 manuscripts written in Slavic, over 3,000 written in Armenian, uh, around 975 written in Coptic, uh, over 600 in Ethiopian, over 350 in Syriac, about 89 manuscripts in Georgian, and 6 in Gothic, okay? So there are a lot of uh, New Testament manuscripts. But not only that, uh, not only are there thousands written in the original language, but also um, other manuscripts of the New Testament, which are translations from the original Greek. Uh, there are also citations of the New Testament from early church fathers. The early church fathers, um, you know, from the first century on, uh, uh, quoted the New Testament. In fact, I've I've read that the the church fathers quoted the New Testament so much uh, that if if we lost every single Bible we have, if we lost every single manuscript we have uh, of the New Testament, you could go back to the writings of the church fathers, and and I don't think every single I don't think they quoted every single uh, sentence. But you could practically piece together a a whole New Testament just off the citations from early church fathers. But this obviously also serves as more evidence for what was originally written, because you can look at, not only can you uh, compare and contrast all the existing manuscripts, but you can compare the existing manuscripts with what was quoted from all these centuries as well. So, but here's some statistics on some of this. Fourteen books of the New Testament were cited by the early church fathers by the end of the first century, which is pretty amazing since uh, the New Testament was written around uh, from between, um, I think they believe it's it was written from around, well, you know, Jesus Christ um, was crucified around A.D. 30 to 33. Um, I think uh, m- most people think that the New Testament was written anywhere from A.D. 40 or so uh, to uh, A.D. 90. So um, that's when we think the New Testament was written. And, and we've got church fathers uh, citing um, uh, 14 books of the New Testament by the end of the first century. 19 New Testament books were recognized through citation by 110 A.D., 24 out of the 27 New Testament books were acknowledged by uh, 150 AD, and then 26 New Testament, 26 out of 27 New Testament books were cited before 200 AD. So, um, just pretty impressive, not only thinking about the manuscripts, but also thinking about the citations of the biblical books, the New Testament books. Now, let's compare this or contrast this with other ancient writings. Like I said, the next closest um uh ancient work to the new testament is homer's iliad okay and this has um 1900 existing manuscripts now i do want to mention something about where i'm getting my numbers this uh this talking about the bibliographical test comparing the new testament with the uh, other ancient writings you always want to be careful where you're getting your numbers because people have been writing about this for a while. Uh, I don't remember who first started arguing for it. I thought it was Josh McDowell uh, who kind of made this point. He might've got it from somebody else, but anyways, he, you know, he, he's had that book evidence that demands a verdict, uh, that he wrote, um, in, in the, Oh, I can't remember when he wrote it. It was like in the, um, I forget the dating of that, but it's, it's obviously like, uh, 20th century now, um, but people have been using the bibliographical test as a way to as an apologetic for the reliability of the New Testament for a while, for decades now. Let's just say that. Uh, but here's the thing: as we talk about the bibliographical test, the numbers for the uh, for the amount of manuscripts and the dating of the manuscripts are always being updated. So it's actually kind of hard to track this and. When you talk to some of the scholars on this who kind of specialize in the bibliographical test, they'll tell you that it's really, it's actually at any given time, it's kind of hard to track down these numbers uh, because the thing is like as apologists, we we love this to make this point that the new Testament is more reliable than others, but the scholars in, in, in ancient documents, they don't care as much of what, you know, how many, what, how many manuscripts do we have? So they're not always, there's not some place where all of these numbers, I mean, the scholars in these areas do care, but the thing is, there's not some database where everybody's always updating how many manuscripts we have and when they're dated um, up to the minute, okay? So every once in a while, someone will do all the work to try to update these numbers. Uh, you just need to make sure that you try to find the uh, article or the book that talks about, talks about it that's the most up-to-date, I personally, when I was trying to uh, study for this, to show this, uh, these numbers to my class, I taught the class in 2020. Um, oh, excuse me. <laughs> I taught the class in, uh, uh 2021 is this the spring of 2021. And, um, uh, the, the earliest, uh, the most updated information I could find was from 2017. So maybe as you're watching this video, these numbers will have been updated a little bit much, but, but between then and now it shouldn't have changed too much. But anyways, I'm just trying to just make the point that it's, it's important to always just try to get the most up-to-date numbers. And it's actually pretty difficult to my knowledge. The most up-to-date numbers comes from Josh and Sean McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell had a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and they they updated it uh, in 2017 and and republished it. So they had all this in here, and a lot of these updated numbers. uh, 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 Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell, they they were emailing people, so that's where they get a lot of these numbers. They they were emailing and talking to the scholars who specialize in this. So so it's kind of a secondhand way of getting it, but. The where I get it from the scholars got it directly from the scholars so uh, so that's where I'm getting my information uh, but yeah they're saying that Homer's Iliad is the is the closest one at 1900 manuscripts then you can see other things like Caesar's Gallic Wars had 251 uh, Demosthenes uh, speeches had 444 uh, existing manuscripts Plato's tetralogies has 238 Sophocles plays has 226 Herodotus histories there's a 106 and uh, you know you might uh, hopefully you're you're hearing some things some names that you uh, are familiar with like Plato Herodotus like these are these are uh, figures from ancient history and and we generally believe that uh, most a lot of what they're saying was historical and we can learn about the ancient world from these right? Well, I I saw something in Josh and Sean McDowell's book, Evidence that Demands a Verdict, that I thought was a great way of kind of uh, emphasizing how big of a difference it is uh, with the number of New Testament manuscripts compared to all other ancient writings. And so they have this graph that I have on the screen here. it, but I can just talk to you. If you're just listening to this, the, they say, so the average, they're talking about how, um, tall it would be if you took all of the existing manuscripts for any particular work and piled them on top of each other. And they made a graph based on that. They say that the average classical writer, if you took all the manuscripts in existence and piled them on each other, uh, the average classical writer, it would go to about four feet, which is kind of impressive. If you ask me, I, you know, um, but uh, if you took all of, the ancient, um, all of the other ancient authors that we mentioned, uh, and, and I think in their book they, uh, they listed more than just these six, but they're saying if you took all these other ancient writings, all together they would uh, make a pile as tall as the One World Trade Center, which is about 1,800 feet tall. But if you took all of the existing manuscripts of the New Testament, pile them on each other, it would be one mile uh, high, <laughs> and you know a, a mile is obviously a lot higher than eighteen hundred feet, and that's all of those works all put together. Not just uh, not just one work. That uh, it really it's it almost comes down to like this average classical writer having a four foot stack, and the New Testament having a mile high stack. So pretty impressive, and uh, and and definitely. Uh, definitely in Christianity's favor when we're trying to say we know that we have what the original authors wrote. And, and I'll get to that here in a second. but right it, what, just remember, what we we're saying is the more manuscripts exist, the more you can compare them with each other to try to determine what the original authors wrote. Okay? But an, like we said, another question that scholars ask about manuscripts is, how close are these existing manuscripts? To when we think the original authors wrote the story in the first place, because it's really important, right? The longer the, the time gap, the less reliable. The closer the time gap, the more the reliable. So uh, talking about these manuscripts, like, you know, what have I even been talking about when I say manuscripts? It, it's actually another thing you want to be careful with when you're talking about the bibliographical test. Because uh, a manuscript can mean a handful of things. It can just be like a fragment. Um, I, I hear these scholars use the term fragment. That's usually when you just have um, maybe just a piece of a page. A manuscript could also just could be a, a full work, a complete work. So a manuscript can be kind of a vague term. <clears throat> but whenever I talk about manuscript here, what when, when I'm mentioning um, is that like specifically when I'm talking about when the original authors wrote what they wrote and uh, the existing manuscripts. So, yeah, so scholars believe that the New Testament was probably written on papyrus rolls between 80, 50, and 100, like I mentioned, um, you know, around 40, 50, between 80, uh, 50, and 100 is when the uh, New Testament was authored, all the 27 books and letters. Um, and, and scholars believe that it was written on papyrus rolls, um, where you had sheets of papyrus that were glued together and rolled up on a stick to make a scroll. Um, later on, uh, you had papyrus codices that were introduced around the beginning of AD 100, uh, but even those are, are pretty perishable. Uh, a codex is where sheets of papyrus are sewn together, uh, similar to a book. But the thing is, all of this was written on papyrus, okay? So I, I like to mention this as we you know, talk about the gap between the original writings of the New Testament and the extant manuscripts, because uh, you might not like the gap as much, but it is important to note that the first authors were writing on papyrus scrolls, and these are very perishable. Uh, the, the scrolls, the codices, um, it would it would be uh, amazing if, if we could find one that was within like a year or two or, or a decade of the original writings. Another thing that's important to remember is that the scriptures themselves, these these uh, um, the the manuscripts where people would copy the letters, copy the books, these were always in jeopardy um, in the first 200 years, 200, 300 years of the church right because, uh, Christians were being persecuted by Romans, so you know, obviously they'd find it and burn it or or confiscate it. Um, so, so it's actually pretty amazing if you consider that that we do have as many manuscripts as we do, um, not necessarily all from the first three centuries, but that anything survived because uh, of how much Christians were being persecuted, uh, and and it's not so it's not only that. Uh, Papyrus is perishable. Also, Christians were being persecuted in the first uh, three, two hundred, 200-300 years. Uh, another thing is because of the persecution, because it wasn't, uh, because it was really a, just a movement at this time, um, the manuscripts weren't systematically copied until the time of Emperor Constantine in uh, three thirteen A.D. When uh, Rome uh, adopts Christianity as its official religion. Okay, so. Um, you don't really have necessi- You don't necessarily have professional scribes leading up to that point. So if you're if you're hoping for a ton of manuscripts in those first three centuries, uh, you're you're not necessarily going to find them all. But having said that, some of these existing manuscripts are pretty amazing. Uh, the earliest manuscript that I know of is is now it's a fragment. Okay. Um, earliest New Testament manuscript is something called the John Rylands Fragment, also known as P fifty two. It is a piece of papyrus dated between one seventeen and one thirty eight A.D., which is actually pretty amazing because it's a it is a portion of John, the Gospel of John, uh, from chapter eighty three, verses thirty one through thirty three, and verses thirty seven through thirty eight. Um, i I think I've never seen it in person, but from what I understand, like you can kind of, I think it, you can read portions of John on the front and the back of it. I might be wrong in that. Um, if you are interested in this, oh, and the, just to finish out what, um, I was talking about the John Ryland's fragment is located in the John Ryland's library in Manchester, England. Now, having said all this, if you are interested in some of these, uh, new Testament fragments, New Testament manuscripts and you're interested and you want to learn more about, um, how all this works, uh, definitely pay attention to my, um, my sources that I'm using at the bottom of the screen. Uh, there's several books that I used. Uh, there's a book called from God to us, how we got our Bible or something like that by Norm Geisler. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, uh, materials on this. I'll try to mention them as we go along, but especially uh, a source that's free that you could go to right now. Uh, there's there's something called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Okay, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and their website is csntm.org. That's C as in Charlie, S as in Sierra, N as in November, T as in Tango, and M as in Mike. And uh, that's dot org. If you go to their website, you can actually—I think that's where I got these pictures uh, that I'm showing on my slides of these manuscripts. You can view sc- scans of all, a lot of these uh, New Testament manuscripts, and it's really fascinating. And you, they also have a blog with articles. They are super knowledgeable, uh, and that's what they do for a living. So it's actually pretty amazing and a great resource. Um, I just wanted to mention that before I forgot. But uh, yes, this John Ryland's fragment is amazing, and the reason why is because it's portions of the Gospel of John. The traditional uh, belief is that the Gospel of John was written around A.D. 90. We think that maybe he wrote his gospel on the, uh, around the time he was on the island of Patmos, around A.D. 90, when he wrote, we think maybe he wrote his gospel and... Uh, the book of Revelation uh, in around AD 90. So if that's the case, then uh, this this fragment of John uh, is is only uh, just a little over 20 years uh, past that, which you're going to see is pretty amazing uh, compared to other ancient writings. Uh, there's also, just to, just so you know, just to kind of list some other things and show you, there's uh, something called the Bodmer papyri, Um It's a collection of of papyri, uh, P66, P72, P75. Um, It is dated from around 200 AD, and it contains most of the Gospels of John and Luke, most of those. It also contains uh, the books uh, of Jude, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. And there's also, and, and there's a bunch of these. If you ever study this, there's all sorts of codexes and. And all sorts of pyri they are named different things, but I, I'm just showing you some of the notable ones. Don't don't take me to be saying that these are our only ones, okay? Uh, these are just some notable ones. Obviously, I, I told you that there's uh, there's thousands and thousands of manuscripts, uh, but another notable one is the Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, it is a manuscript dated to three uh, three fifty A.D. and it contains the full New Testament, okay? It can and it also contains about half of the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, to kind of sum all this up, uh, what I'm saying is when we're asking, you know, how old are, are our uh, oldest manuscripts when you think about the New Testament as a collection of ancient documents? Uh, the New Testament, we think, was written between A.D. 50 and 100. OK, but our earliest fragments now, it's just a fragment, not complete books, but our earliest fragments dates from 117 to 138 A.D., and then we've got complete books as early as 200 AD, and then uh, the complete New Testament um, as a whole as early as 350. Um, oh, and another thing is, uh, as far as the the oldest manuscripts, just so you know, I in 2013. So it's, uh, it's actually. Uh, I can't believe I've been studying this this long but since 2013 I remember I was hearing rumors about a manuscript of the portion uh, of a portion of the Gospel of Mark that so, some people thought they had found a portion of the Gospel of Mark a, a manuscript and they were claiming that it was uh, dated as early as 85 AD <laughs> which would be pretty amazing. I mean, uh, Mark, it's a lot of scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel written. I personally think it's like it, like the traditional account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it would still be the second oldest, but you know, we're talking like written in the fifties or sixties. So, you know, the, it's not like John was written in 90. So, but it would still be a very early and even earlier than the John Ryland's uh, papyrus. Uh, but 85 AD, AD would be amazing. Uh, but supposedly, I, I'm not sure why this this was mentioned back in 2013, and they still haven't published the findings. But I've I've heard that it's going through some peer review process. I'm not sure what's happening with that. Uh, it, it, and you know, it's difficult in some situations because there will be a private owner of a manuscript and all sorts of things. So no telling what's happening with it. But it, it, Anyways, the, the important thing to remember with that John Rylands papyrus, our earliest manuscript, is just a, a twenty or so years after the last book was written. Um, and then when we compare this with all other ancient writings, okay? So, so I I, I liked uh, I took just a, a, a small sample, uh, but I also took because I didn't want to mention a ton of ancient writings. There's obviously a lot more than just the six I've mentioned. Homer and uh, Demosthenes uh, Sealer's Galaxy War uh, Sealers Kalik Wars Plato Sophocles Herodotus obviously there's more than that but I just took some of the the six closest ones basically so I didn't have to mention a, a lot more ancient writings uh, but talking about these we look at the gaps between when we think the original work was written and our oldest manuscripts of these let's let's look at how other ancient uh, writings uh, measure up to the New Testament with the bibliographical test, okay? So Homer's Iliad, we think that was written um, in uh, 800 BC, but our oldest manuscript at, you know, at this uh, snapshot in time in 2017, they think that the oldest manuscript uh, was from uh, 415 BC. So that gives you a gap of 385 years, Okay. Dem- uh, Demosthenes' Speeches, uh, written in 300 B.C., and the oldest manuscript is 1st century B.C., so that gives you a gap of about 200 years. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, written around 58 to 44 B.C., and the oldest manuscript is from the ninth century A.D., uh, so that's a gap of 950 years. Plato's uh, uh, written around 400 B.C., and our oldest manuscript is from the 3rd century B.C. That actually uh, used to be a very large gap, and then I heard they made a discovery, which was pretty amazing for ancient writings. And, and uh, yeah, the, the oldest manuscript now is 3rd century B.C., so that gives you a gap of 100 years. Sophocles Plays, uh, written around 496 to 406 B.C., The oldest manuscript is around two uh, between 299 and 200 BC, so that gives you a gap of uh, between 100 and 200 years. Herodotus' history is written around 480 to 425 BC, and our oldest manuscript is one uh, from 150 to 50 BC, so that gives you a gap of about 300 years. From my list here that I have, the if you look at all the years and average those together, look at all the gaps. The average here from my um, list is uh, three hundred and forty-seven years. If I did my math correctly. Um, now, <clears throat> what, so what I've read when you read about the bibliographical test, and, and again, I was—I just took this selection of six ancient works, mainly because that they provide. Uh, they show us you know, what are the next closest ones as far as number of manuscripts, and this is just happens to be the gaps between them. But whenever they look at all other ancient writings, the list goes on and on, right? And what they say is that the average gap between the original writing and the earliest copy for most ancient books is 700 years. Now uh, I've you know studying the bibliographical test in apologetics, I've also seen some people think that the average gap was 900 years. Some people thought it was a thousand years. I like to just show the most conservative numbers that I've found, the ones that give the other ancient writings uh, as much credit as possible. Or, uh, so yeah, the, what they say is the average so the average here in my list is 347 but they think that the average of all other ancient writings is 700. So, uh, but, but even then, what regardless of whether it's 375 or if it's 700, that is huge, right, when you compare it with the New Testament. So the average gap from our sample is about 350 years. The average gap of most ancient writings is 700 years. The New Testament gap is that twenty years if you're just looking at fragments, and it's a hundred years if you're looking at whole books, and it's two hundred and fifty years if you're looking at full manuscripts, and I mean like a collection of the whole thing. Uh, you don't. I personally, if I was you, I wouldn't. Cons- I wouldn't worry too much about whether the whole New Testament was collected together. Uh, you know, as long as we have whole books within 100 years, that's pretty great, right? Uh, if, if, you, if you wanted to look at it for yourself, you'd have to study when is the earliest manuscript that has, you know, you'd have to look at all 27 books and determine what was the earliest uh, we ha- what is the oldest manuscript that has the entire book. But anyways, th- this is just amazing that uh, the New Testament, um, all of these 27 books and letters of the New Testament, uh, we've got whole books within 100 years. We've got uh, fragments within 20 years. I think that's actually uh, yeah in, in this list. So w- when I told you these gaps, this is this is counting anything uh, up to a fragment, right? I think this uh, whenever I said that some people have said that the the average gap is 700 to 900 to a thousand years. Those scholars, if I remember right, we're considering all ancient works, but also whenever, what was the earliest that we had a whole book? So you can look at it one of two ways. You know, you can look at this 350 year number and, and compare that to the 20 year gap of the New Testament when you're considering fragments. You can look at the 700 year number and compare that to the 100 year number where we have whole books. So, um, or the 250 year number where we have the, all of the, the, the books together in one place. Either way, the New Testament stands far above other ancient writings. So uh, definitely when you're asking those questions of how many manuscripts are there and how old are the manuscripts, the New Testament uh, beats out all other ancient writings by a long shot. So it's pretty impressive. Now, another question you want to ask is how do all the manuscripts uh, compare with each other, right? That's, That's one reason why it's so great to have a great number of manuscripts, a large number of manuscripts because the more manuscripts you have, the more you can compare them with one another to try to determine what you think the original writing was. They say that um, a lot of ancient writings, or not a lot of them, but a handful of ancient writings, there's not enough manuscripts to determine this at all. So they, they, if you just have like one or two manuscripts, for example, and uh, you don't have a large, uh, sample to compare with each other to see if there's variations in it. So you kind of just have to say, well, maybe this is what the original author wrote. Maybe it's not. We're not, we don't have enough data for that. Um, it, but yeah, so, and, and let me discuss kind of what they're looking at whenever they do compare them and contrast them with each other, talking about the manuscripts, uh, one manuscript might be different from another. And what you're trying to do when you're comparing them is you're trying to determine what was the original writing. So uh, I think I get this specific example from one of Norman Geisler's books. It's it's probably his book. uh, It's either his book, Christian Apologetics, or Where We Got the Bible. But he was mentioning, so when scholars uh, compared the manuscripts together. So on the screen I have this sentence that it says, it basically says, congratulations, you have won $1 million. Uh, you know, and he was talking about that old, uh, publisher's clearing house. If you know anything about that, uh, it was some contest where, uh, well, they would try to sell you magazines is what it was. It was this company that tried to sell magazine subscriptions. And their, their main way of doing that was they would send out all these letters, uh, send out all these advertisements to people And if you bought a magazine subscription, it entered you into the contest to win $1 million. So uh, it was a business model. Well, anyways, the statement says, congratulations, you have won $1 million. But I've got um, seven, let's see, no, it's about six sentences on my screen. Each sentence has one letter that's kind of messed up and been replaced. It has one or two letters that's messed up and been replaced with a percentage sign or a money sign or some other symbol. Uh, but whenever you compare these six sentences together, and you know, like, so in, in the first sentence, the, there's a percentage sign in the place of a Y in the, in the word you. Congratulations, you have won $1 million. But whenever I compare that with the other six sentences, I see that the other six sentences have the word you, and it's spelled while you. So my conclusion would be, that the original author wrote, you, right? And you can see how that works out in all the rest of the words. Uh, Some of the other words have mistakes in some of the other sentences, but when you compare it with all the sentences, you easily conclude that the original author wrote, congratulations, you have $1 million. And that's even if you have variations that are a lot more drastic than just one letter changed. On my next slide, I have three sentences. They all say, congratulations, you have $1 million. You've won one million dollars, but they might say it in different ways. So the second one says, "Congratulations, thou hast won one million dollars." The third one says, "Congratulations, y'all have won one million dollars," and the one million dollars is in numbers. But even here, you can see how, even though these are these are different, if if I'm trying to compare these, I can get I can get really close to determining what the original author meant if if I'm if I'm comparing the manuscripts, right? And that's kind of how it works. So. Uh, it's really great that the main that the Old Test excuse me. It's really great that the New Testament has so many manuscripts because we can compare them all and line them up and, and try to determine uh, what what we think the accuracy is. Okay, so so yeah, let's talk about this. I'm going to talk about how accurate we think the New Testament is concerning all that. But before I do, I'll just talk about uh, two other ancient works. Um, and you know, if you read Norman Geisler's Christian Apologetics, second edition. If you read um, Josh and Sean McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, you can read in even more detail about this bibliographical test and the accuracy of other works. Um, but anyways, Homer's Iliad contains about fifteen thousand six hundred lines. Okay, and what they do is they take all those nineteen hundred or so manuscripts and line them all up, uh, and it is it's similar to what we were just looking at when they. Most of the manuscript, right? Uh, So what I was going to say is that there's 15,600 lines in Homer's Iliad. 764 of those lines are in question so on 764 of those 15,600 lines there might have been something that's not the same in every one in the rest of the cases it is the same so that's why those lines aren't in question but since there's variations in 764 of them then the original uh what was originally written is in question that's how it works uh, but because only 764 out of 15,600 lines in Homer's Iliad are in question, that means that the conclusion is that Homer's uh, Homer's text is about 95% pure. Okay, uh, so we think that uh, 95% of it is is definitely what was originally written because uh, there aren't variations with that uh, when you compare all the manuscripts. Uh, another example is the Indian Mahabharata. Uh, this work has about 250,000 lines. 26,000 of those lines are in doubt. And that means that roughly uh, the Mahabharata is 90% pure. Okay. So you got Homer's Iliad would be about 95% pure. Uh, The Indian Mahabharata about 90%, which honestly, that's pretty good, right? Uh, 95%, 90% purity is still pretty good. Now, let's look at the New Testament. When you take all those manuscripts, and, you, and uh, uh, scholars have, have done all this work, when you compare the manuscripts with each other, what we find is that there are about 20,000 lines in the New Testament, okay, total. Forty of those lines are in question. So there's 20,000 lines in the New Testament altogether as a collection of 26 books and letters, but only 40 of those lines are in question. And this, if you go with those numbers right there, that would mean that the New Testament is 99.8% pure. Um, Several scholars have studied this, uh, and here's just a sampling. Not everybody gives the exact same number, but they all give really high numbers, right? So, um, yeah, so noted Greek authority, A.T. Robertson has said the real concern is with about a thousandth part of the entire text. Uh, he argued that, um, that it's 99.9% pure. Uh, Greek scholars, Westcott and Hort, calculated about a purity of 98.33%. Um, early American biblical scholar Ezra Abbott Ezra Abbott determined the New Testament to be 99.7%. Five percent pure. (laughs) Okay, so uh, the New Testament. Just to sum all this up, you know, ninety-nine point nine percent. Even if you're going with ninety-eight point three three percent, it's just an amazing. Uh, thing. So not, not only does the New Testament have the most manuscripts out of all ancient writings by far, it also has the smallest gaps. and whenever they look at, take those manuscripts and put them up next to each other, it, you, it, they find that only 40 out of the 20,000 lines are in question and it comes out to a 98 to 99% purity. Uh, so it is pretty amazing and it, re, it leads people to the conclusion that we really do have what the original authors wrote. Uh, it is not when you look at the uh different manuscripts you're not looking at something like a telephone game you're looking at something that was uh pretty uh pretty similar throughout the whole uh process of it being copied and transmitted now some people have objected to this and i wanted to bring up especially uh, an objection coming from a scholar named Bart Ehrman if you haven't heard of him he's a agnostic uh biblical scholar who has written many popular books on, uh, on the reliability of the new Testament. So, uh, he argues that the new Testament is unreliable because there are probably over 400,000 errors in the new Testament manuscripts. Okay. Uh, you know, and I don't know, it was, it was more of something he kind of emphasized. Now he's writing popular level books. You know, He's got he's pretty, pretty well known in certain circles and he like, you know, he sells books. So, You know, however you want to take that, (laughs) but here's a quote from him from his book uh, "Misquoting Jesus." Uh, He wrote in 2005. He says there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So yeah, in that book "Misquoting Jesus," he emphasized that he thought he calculated there are over 400,000 errors in the New Testament manuscripts. Now, I. In, in answering if you were going to object to the new Testament based off of that observation. Okay. There's a, there's a couple of things that are important to, to remember. So conservative scholars estimate that there are actually 200,000 variants in new Testament manuscripts. Um, and these are only found in about 10,000 places. Okay. Um, now, and I should have said this earlier, uh, whenever we talk about how it's 99% pure, 98% pure. Uh, one thing to remember when we, when we were mentioning that there's about 40 lines that are in question, you know, and whenever you look at specific places in the lines, I think is what they're getting at. There's, there's only, uh, these variations are only in 10,000 places. You know, when we say that there's only 40 lines that are in question, that's when you're saying, well, we're not, we're not certain, that this is what it's saying. You know, if you go back to our slide where it says, congratulations, you have won $1 million, uh, those lines wouldn't really be in question, right? Because we'd be pretty certain exactly what they wrote. But whenever you get to variations more like our second one where it's saying thou hast won $1 million, we can still know what the message is, but maybe we're not sure exactly what's written. So whenever it says that there's uh, variations, then that's why it's going to say that they're in about 10,000 places. Uh, and there's 200,000 of them. So that's why it sounds a lot worse than what I was showing earlier. Uh, you know, we're talking about what's in question. But whether it's in question or it's one of these variants, uh, it is important that uh, to note that in these places where we're not exactly sure what they wrote or there was a variation, none of these places... Are places in the New Testament that that discuss or talk about major Christian doctrines. Okay, uh, Bart Ehrman himself. Let's see. Oh, I'm kind of uh, getting I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll go ahead and read a quote he has from misquoting Jesus. He says, "In fact, most of the changes found in early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology." Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple. Slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort or another. Okay, so even Bart Ehrman uh, uh, emphasizes that no Christian doctrines are in question due to these variations. So just so you know that there are variations here and there, and I'm actually going to talk about those here in a second, but none of these variations are in places uh, where you're talking about important Christian doctrines like Jesus Christ rising from the dead, uh, you need to believe in Christ for salvation and all, you know, all that stuff. Uh, they, they, they don't they don't bring into question the major doctrines. It's just uh, uh, different errors here and there. Now uh, to answer Bart Ehrman though, he's saying there's over four hundred thousand. You know there's more variations. There's uh, in the New Testament. There are words in the New Testament. Well, here's an, just so you know, here's an interesting thing about how he calculates that number, okay? He counts every variation, every error, regardless of whether it was copied or not. Does that make sense? So let's say that uh, in one of the earlier manuscripts, so say you've got a few manuscripts that are like uh, hundreds of years older than the rest of them. And in those really early ones, you see that they're all kind of, they have a word spelled a certain way. And then you can see that in a later manuscript, that word gets misspelled. Well, but then you see that all the manuscripts after that first one that where it misspelled the word, they faithfully copied that mistake throughout the rest of the manuscripts. Bart Ehrman would not only count that first one as a mistake, he would count every time they copied the mistake as a mistake. Uh, does that make sense? So it makes it sound like there's a ton of errors when you're really talking about just one error that was faithfully copied over the rest of them. So one misspelling, for example, could turn into three thousand errors according to the way he calculates it if it was copied uh, two thousand nine hundred ninety nine times later on. So that's how he gets to that number. Uh, and it's actually it's 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 pretty ironic. Um, I don't know who did this, but somebody found that there were 16 errors in Bart Ehrman's book misquoting Jesus when it was first printed. Uh, and and let's say that there were 100,000 copies that were printed, right? Uh, because he sells a lot of books, as a New York Times bestseller, you know whatever that means. But let's say that 100,000 copies were printed. If there's 16 errors, that would mean that Bart Ehrman's work has 1.6 million errors in it. <laughs> you know, he's, so obviously that's a lot more uh, errors than there were words in his entire book. So according to his own reasoning, his own book is, is unreliable because there's, because, uh, you know, there was a hundred thousand copies and, and maybe there's 16 errors in it. So it's unreliable. So, uh, really, a uh, kind of, a not a very good, uh, a method to, to follow, to determine whether the New Testament is, is, uh, is reliable or not, right? We already saw the, like, the traditional way everybody does it and, it, and the New Testament does hold up to that bibliographical test. You don't have to worry about how many times one error was copied. Uh, that's not a good test. Bart Ehrman's own book would be unreliable according to his own, uh, that own thing. But again, I, you know, sometimes I, I wonder if he just makes statements like that to, to be uh, provocative and to sell books. He, he, he himself uh, uh, mentions later on in the book that uh, most of these mistakes are just slips of the pen, and, and they don't bring into question any major doctrines. So uh, it makes you wonder why he even mentions that in the first place. But again, maybe it was just to sell books. I don't know. But uh, I, in my class in apologetics, I didn't want to sugarcoat this. Uh, it is important to know about variations in New Testament manuscripts so uh, you can come across uh, as, you know, just tell people how it is. Uh, we don't need to hide any of this stuff because we're not worried about it. Because again, no Christian doctrines, major Christian doctrines, are are in question with some of these variations. So it is good to know that these exist, just in case you haven't had a uh, unrealistic view of the manuscripts of the New Testament. I, I didn't mention, you know, we don't have any of the original autographs. We don't we don't have any of the original writings, right? We just there's that gap. We think the New Testament was written between A.D. 50 and 100. Uh, there is written on papyri, no telling what happened to those original ones. You know, they're passed around in the church. Uh, who knows? Uh, but since our, our oldest existing manuscripts are, are so old, we think that we're pretty close to the writings, right? Um, but anyways, yeah, let's look at some of these variations. So uh, scholars uh, basically uh, put these in two major categories. There's unintentional variations. Uh, which are basically like transcriptional errors, right? Um, and I'll talk about the different types that you see. And then there's intentional. And, and these can be, um, they, they, they're not always like, you know, someone like changing something for a bad reason. Uh, but you, I'll just talk about these. But yeah, there's unintentional changes, uh, variations, I mean, which comprise the majority of transcriptional errors. And there's intentional. These account for the rest of the, the variations, Uh, But uh, the vast majority of them are unintentional errors. Okay, just want to emphasize that. Um, Types of unintentional errors, there's omissions, which is where a line, word, or letter was accidentally skipped while copying, uh, right? And, And you can pretty much tell this whenever you're comparing manuscripts. You just see that maybe a whole line or maybe a word or a letter was accidentally skipped over. But again, this is why only 40 lines are in question. Because when you, can you, when you can compare so many of these manuscripts and they're all so similar, if, if one letter is missing, it's easy to determine what the original word was, right? Um, even if a whole word is missing. Uh, repetitions. It's the, a repetition is the opposite of an error of omission where they, maybe they, they um, wrote twice, incorrectly wrote the same letter, word, or line. Uh, In 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 when they were copying it down. There's transposition. It's when you accidentally switch the position of a letter or a word, uh, switch the position of words in a sentence or letters in a word. And then there's other scribal errors like confusions of spelling, abbreviations, scribal insertions uh, uh, to help them, um, yes, and, and other scribal insertions. So those account for the remainder of the scribal errors. Then you have intentional variations, okay, and like I said, these account for the rest of the variations, but the vast majority are unintentional. Uh, there's ortho, what they call orthographic uh, variations. That's a variation in spelling, and and they. Uh, so you know when you hear intentional variation or intentional, uh, it sounds like a bad thing, but intentional doesn't have to be a bad thing. So like there's spe- spelling variations. That's an intentional variation sometimes. And this is explained by differing, differing scribal traditions uh, with their different rules and different traditions had different rules for the spelling of proper names, uh, different verb forms, and sometimes different grammar and gender. Okay, so that's an intentional variation. Sometimes when we talked about uh, existing manuscripts, a lot of times some of these manuscripts are uh, liturgical documents. So maybe. Maybe they found in uh, a document they think uh, that an ancient church or a really old church was using for their services. That would be a liturgical document. And in these documents, sometimes they made minor changes to passages at the beginning, uh, or maybe they summarized a passage. And these would be manuscripts with intentional variations in them for obvious liturgical reasons. So those account for some of the intentional variations. Sometimes, especially in the Gospels, um, you know, the, the Gospel writers, if you don't already know this, the Gospel writers don't um, always uh, present the, the uh, stories in the same order. And sometimes uh, scribes, were they made what's called harmon, harmonizational changes between the Gospels because the information always isn't presented the exact same. So some uh, well-meaning scribes, I guess, would would make harmonizational changes or maybe historical and factual changes. Uh, so, for example, Mark eight, uh, Mark eight, verse thirty-one says, "Where after three days," in some in some manuscripts it says, "Where after three days," uh, excuse me, in some manuscripts it says, "After three days" in Mark eight thirty-one. And then in other manuscripts, it looked like it was changed. Uh, later manuscripts, it was changed to the third day. So it's changed. It was changed from after three days to on the third day. On the third day. Yeah. So that would be an example of a harmonizational change. Um, there's and then I think it's this. There's two more I was going to talk about. Uh, the la- the second to last is conflational changes. This is where you would combine two or more variants into a single reading. So. Maybe you've got two manuscripts and they have a variation and you change what you think was the original. You know, you're a scribe and you have two, uh, two manuscripts and you change what you think uh, was the correct variation or you think what was the original. You you combine the two uh, into a single reading and it ends up uh, uh, conflating it. That That's another intentional change, another well-meaning change. Um and then there are doctrinal changes. Uh, they're they're pretty rare, but uh, they are they have been known to exist. Uh, these constitute the last category of intentional changes. An example an example of a doctrinal change is from First John, uh, uh, chapter five, verses seven through eight. In in some manuscripts, uh, it said, starting in verse seven, it says, "For there are three that testify." the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And they found that in in uh, later manuscripts, it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So, really interesting. And there's one of the books that I used to get some of this material it's called Norman Geisler. Uh, it, it's, it's not called that. It's written by Norman Geisler and William Nix, and it's and it's titled "From God to Us: How We Got Our Bible." Um, so, and that was updated at least in 2012. So that's a good book to go look at. But, but yes, like I said, there are no Christian doctrines that hang on a debatable passage. Um, I found this information in a book on the Old Testament that I found interesting because uh, there's a, there's a um, scholar named Gleason Archer Jr. who uh, breaks down how scholars go about, it's called lower criticism, if I'm right. And uh, what they do, here's the method that Gleason Archer uh, lists out that is, is kind of the norm in this study of manuscripts. So if there is a variation, what the scholars do, trying to determine what the original r- uh, reading was, they kind of have these guidelines, not strict laws or anything, but these are some of the guidelines that they consider. So a lot of times the older reading, when you have a variation in a word or a line, they say the older reading is to be preferred, the more difficult reading is to be preferred, the shorter reading is preferred, the reading which best explains the variance is, to, is preferred, and the widest geographical support for a reading makes it preferred, the reading which conforms best with the author's style and diction is preferred, and seven. And final, the reading which reflects no doctrinal bias is preferred. You can see how this list is kind of a, you know, they don't they don't have to take into account every single one, but these are good guidelines, right? Usually, since especially since they think the closer it is to the writings, the better it is, the more reliable it is. The older manuscripts are take, given more weight when we're trying to determine what is the original uh writing right so the older readings are to be preferred the more difficult reading so you don't want to read into what you think it's supposed to say if it's if it's more difficult then uh then they think that maybe you should prefer that shorter readings are to be preferred uh you know it, it it would make sense that if something's going to be added it's going to make it longer so the shorter readings are usually preferred uh Sometimes they just do an inference to the best explanation. They say this. Uh, I think this is the original. Uh, uh, if they if they have an idea of what they think is the original reading, and that would be that would explain all the variants, then that should be preferred. Uh, you know. So they're not only looking at the age of these manuscripts, but they're also looking at where they think that manuscript originated. So they'll actually talk about families of manuscripts in terms of where they came from and they say that if a, a if a reading has the widest geographical support so maybe there's a variant but it was only found from manuscripts from a certain location geographically then they look then they prefer the reading that is uh, uh, that's found in more places than not does that make sense so that's an that's an interesting rule that I definitely think sounds great and then, yeah, if there's a reading that conforms with the author's style and diction better, then that's to be preferred, and the reading which reflects no doctrinal bias is to be preferred, and I think that's a good rule, too. All in all, I've got to kind of finish out our talk um, with a quote from, a, uh, from noted manuscript expert Sir Frederick Kenyon. Uh, this is from his, his, his work called Our Bible and the Ancient Manuscripts from 1958. He says, The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church, is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or the other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other book in the world. So like I said, when you look at all these questions about how many manuscripts how old are the manuscripts, and how accurate are the manuscripts? The New Testament stands far above all other ancient writings, and if we didn't think that that was enough to to think that we had what the authors originally wrote, then we would also need to throw out all of the rest of the ancient writings. Uh, but since that is obviously not done, there are so many experts that think we do know about the ancient world from other ancient writings that uh, that we must also believe that the New Testament we do have very close to uh, what the original authors wrote, and, and, and especially we have what the original authors wrote in, in matters that are important to Christians, okay? Um, so just to go over my reflection questions again, uh, the first one is, why do you think it matters that we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient document? The second question is, if someone thinks we cannot trust the New Testament, what implications would this have for ancient history, And our third one was, do you think the New Testament is susceptible to the telephone game objection? I don't usually usually do this, but I did want to mention why the New Testament, the transmission of the New Testament is not the same as the telephone game. Uh, You you might not even be sure what I mean when I talk about the telephone game. So depending on where you're listening to this, in America, they have something called the telephone game. It's it's usually a, a, a children's game and it and it's fun because what you do is you get a handful of people to kind of stand in a circle the more people the better and the first person turns to, to someone either to their left or their right and they say something they whisper something into that person's ear and then that person tells the next person uh, whispers that into the next person's ear and the fun th- and it goes all the way around back to the person who first said this the word or the sentence it's usually a sentence of some kind of statement and it's always fun uh, for it to come all the way back around the circle to the original person, and then the last person says what he or she heard, and then you compare it to what the original person said, and it can turn into all sorts of funny things. You know, it's it's funny to see what it started out as and what it ended up as. Uh, but let's look at let's look at what is happening in the telephone game, and then and then uh, uh, compare it to what's happening with the New Testament manuscripts. Okay. So, because a lot of people, and, and I've, I've heard this myself, uh, it's not just something I read in an apologetics textbook. I've heard this myself when, when talking to people about uh, the Bible. So the, the telephone game, the th- a major difference that we'll talk about is the goal of the telephone game. The goal is the of the telephone game is actually to have a good time. And it's funny to see how badly the first... Um, uh, statement or or this my slide says story but usually you don't tell a whole story in someone's ear but it's funny to see how much the statement can change so it's not like the people in this in the game are super concerned about getting it as accurate as possible maybe some of them are but most of them uh, think it's funny to change something here and there and your line of transmission right uh this is a major thing so and it's a major difference well i guess i think it'd be better for me to talk about the thing and the differences right so in the telephone game the goal the goal of the telephone game is to have fun and to see how badly represented the first thing said can change from the original person to the last with the new testament manuscripts the goal of anybody who ever copied the new testament was to uh was to conserve it right these are the words of the apostles and of Jesus Christ and in uh, and, and the, the original stories. So when people copied the, the, the New Testament, they wanted it to be as accurate as possible. So the goals that are happening are different from the telephone game and different from what happened with the history of the New Testament. The line of transmission, and this is really important. What's different with the telephone game is that only one person speaks to another person and what that person says has to go to the next person. But that's not what happened with the New Testament. At any given time, maybe, you know, at first, maybe at first when the author was around, he or she wrote the book or the the gospel or wrote the letter. Uh, And then, of course, from the first original writing to the next manuscript, there's just one. But as these began circulating and got copied more and more, it's different from just there always just being one. You know, it's not like the original author of a New Testament letter wrote it and then someone copied that and then they destroyed the original and then it happened like that. So there's only one in existence at each moment. That would be similar to the telephone game, but that's not what happens as they keep copying it, there's more and more copies. And you, and whenever you're making your newest copy of, it, of the original, you can look at all the existing copies. So that's a huge difference as well. The means of transmission. Uh, in the telephone game, the statement or whatever is being said is whispered orally into someone's ear once. <laughs> With the New Testament, it was written down. So it's not like it's totally different. It's not whispered into your ear, and it's not just said once. You're sitting there, and you're copying one thing to the next. So that's a huge difference from the telephone game. And the last thing is, yeah, when you're checking the transmission, the the only thing that you can check is the last person in the chain in the telephone game, right? Uh, they just tell you once in your ear. You After that, you only have your memory to go on. With the New Testament, you've got... Um, You've got all these manuscripts that you can look at, so it's it's totally different from the telephone game. So that's just something to, to, to remember if you're ever going to be talking to people about the manuscripts. Remember these major differences, because that really blows this telephone game objection out of the water. So anyways, I think we've been going pretty long, but I'm going to leave you guys again with our Frank Turk quote from uh, Frank Turk Says in Stealing from God. If there is a God who created the universe, then he can do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside the universe. Uh, really quickly, I wanted to recommend uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary to everyone. This is a seminary where I went to. It's a seminary and Bible college. You can get everything from certificates to bachelor's degrees to graduate degrees from a master's degree to a, a doctor of ministry or a Ph.D. Um, it's uh, Their website is ses.edu. Uh They emphasize apologetics in everything they do, Um, but, of course, you can learn theology, you can learn philosophy, you can learn uh, biblical studies, biblical languages, and all that great stuff. Uh, It's in Matthews, North Carolina. They have online programs and uh, in-person programs, of course, and it's a great seminary. I I recommend it. Um, I also want to mention uh, Kingdom Preparatory Academy. It's where my children go here in Lubbock, Texas. Kingdom Preparatory Academy is a classical Christian school. It goes from all the way from uh, pre-K to twelfth uh, grade, and it is a classical school. So they they emphasize the classical model um, where they teach your kids mainly how to think in the context of all the uh, all the um, subjects. So it's it's more of teaching your kids how to think, not what to think. So there's a huge emphasis on critical thinking and. Uh, and it's, it's just great. Uh, our, our kids go there. I wouldn't send them anywhere else. It's a classical Christian school grounded in the Bible, grounded in scripture. And, uh, it's a university model also. So, you know, uh, they, this, our students, um, only go to school usually from on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So when they get to college, it's not a huge, um, uh, culture shock where they're only going to school on Tuesday and Thursday or something like that. Uh, so yeah, I recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to kingdomprep.org and you can find information about that. In our next lecture, uh, we are going to be talking about, so we just talked about the reliability of the New Testament documents. In the next lecture, we're going to turn to the authors of the New Testament and look at all these different ways on why we think you can know by the writings themselves how uh, it seems like the, the documents were written by eyewitness witness. Um, eyewitnesses to the accounts, and written by reliable people. So in the next lecture, we're going to be talking about the New Testament writers. Uh, So I hope to see you there. It's going to be a great uh, lecture. It's going to be a great study. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great day.